Welcome to Side Hustle City, and thanks for joining us. Our goal is to help you connect to real people who found success turning their side hustle into a main hustle, and we hope you can too. I'm Adam Kaler. I'm joined by Kyle Stevie, my co-host. Let's get started. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to the Side Hustle City podcast. Uh, today, I got some special guests. If anybody's ever wondered how to be a real estate developer or invest in real estate. We got a couple of gentlemen from Winter Spring Capital, Nick Earls, Eric DiNicola. Is that, did I do it right? You almost got it. Close enough. That okay. Works. That works. Okay, cool. So guys, welcome to the show. Hey, Adam. Thanks for having us. So talk a little bit about uh, where are you guys, where are you guys from? First of all, I think you're, you're on the East Coast, right? Yep. We're, uh, most of our projects are in Boston or outside surrounding cities. Okay. Are you both from that area or where'd you, where'd you grow up? Yeah. So Eric and I have actually been friends since we were uh, kids, grew up in Southern Southeast Massachusetts, kind of like a suburban rural area, at least rural for, you know, this part of the country. So we, you know, we've been friends for almost 20 years now, always kind of had like a rebellious streak or, (laughs) you know, didn't want to work for someone else. You know, that sort of energy, even when we were young, played a lot of, you know, games together, football, powerlifting, played video games, competitive ones. Um, So built up, you know, some good teamwork skills between the two of us, went our separate ways. I got introduced to real estate. I got my real estate license out of college. And uh, we've just been doing that ever since, you know, we, we had a plan to buy a rental property originally, which is kind of a tried and true method. A lot of people have followed in real estate, but I was selling and I kind of saw an opportunity in the Boston market for condominium development, um, which we could get into, but we started our company in 2015 and we've been, we've been building condominiums ever since. Um, we're doing a lot of other stuff now as well. Affordable housing, office to apartment conversion. But that was that was how we got started. I love it. Actually, you guys would probably know a lot about condo flipping then, right? Yeah, that's essentially uh, what we do. That's a, pretty much our what we that's what Nick's talking about when he says we got into development. Um, and, you know, we own some rentals as well, but that's pretty much our, our, you know, kind of our main business. Um, what we do in Boston is, uh, where condos are very hot. There's a lot of buyers for condos, sort of the, the, the gap between condo sell out, uh, sort of the ratio, I guess you could say between condo sales prices versus, you know, rents in the area, rents are very high in Boston, but condo prices are really high. It's kind of like a, it, it's a lot wider that, that ratio, that gap, um, than it might be in some other cities. So, I mean, what we look at, uh, as, as essentially condo as flippers is we'll buy a property. Um, and you know, some people might think, okay, you fix it up, you turn it into a single condo and you sell it. Um, what we'll, we'll do is we'll find a property. Maybe there exists a single family house on it, a a two family, a three family. Um, those are kind of typical in Boston. Um, any of those three and we'll sell it. I mean, I'm sorry, we'll, 
will get it permitted for many more units, like 10 units. Um, and so the way we do that is um, we'll say, okay, look, this is a, this exists on say like a, a 5,000 square foot lot, which isn't very big, but in Boston, that's, you know, an okay size parcel of land. Um, we'll go through a, a process where we kind of get it rezoned essentially. Um, and that's kind of our expertise. It's a, it's a big, you know, kind of long process, a political process mm. where you say, okay, I'm allowed by the letter of the law here to, do a three family structure. Now that could just be a single structure that's owned by someone and they rent out the three units as apartments, or you could convert it to condos. And those three are individually owned condominium units. Um, and the three separate owners maybe have a condominium association, something like that. Um, so what we do is we'll add value by either knocking down the existing structure and building say a five to 10 unit building, um, our largest project is a 32 unit luxury condominium building. We're starting right now. Um, but we'll figure out a way to say, okay, it costs this much. We know how much it costs us to construct it. Um, and we know what we can sell these condos for, uh, you know, it's all kind of based on a per square foot basis. That's how we can estimate and project these projects and figure out how much profit we can make if it's a profitable project. And it's getting tougher and tougher in Boston. A lot of the inefficiencies have kind of been gobbled up. Um, well, and you also we'll got find a bunch of you know, uh, supply chain issues right now too. I mean, the prices of things, I mean, for a while there, if you guys were buying lumber, what, maybe like six months ago, it was crazy. We kind of walked out in terms of the lumber issue, the stage that a lot of our projects were at was either right before lumber or prior to that and permitting or kind of right after. It oh, is wow. a very unique situation that we found ourselves in with all our projects as far as lumber specifically. Now we've had an issue, not, not an issue, but we've you know been subjected to the increases of a lot of other materials and logistical issues, supply chain issues that you're talking about, Adam. Um, and that's very real and very true. And that does affect our industry big time. Um, but it's just, you know, it's stuff we have to work around. We figure out how to make it work. Maybe we change some of the material types we're using um, to make some of these projects work. Wow. So, okay, let's talk about just Boston specifically, like some numbers. So people, you know, if they need to understand, like you guys are going in, you're buying probably already existing structures, correct? Yep. That's what you're saying. So you go in there, you buy these, you say, man, this place needs this much work. Um, maybe it's like a, you know, an old one single family, or it's a, a place that you can get more units out of. However, what is the general price per square foot you pay what is the price per square foot to redevelop? And then what is the price per square foot when you sell it on average? The price per square foot when you buy it will vary a lot um, because it'll depend on what you're buying. A lot of times we'll go in and say it's a single family and it's in a neighborhood where you've got an oversized lot. You can squeeze in seven, eight, nine, ten 10 units. You know, that price per square foot might be a lot lower than if we were buying maybe a commercial property um, where we're doing more units. So that I'll leave that aside because that part can vary a lot. You got to look, you know, project to project. Mm -hmm. But the big thing we focus on is the construction cost per square foot. So that can vary if you're doing kind of a conversion of an existing structure. You could be kind of anywhere from 150 to 175 dollars a square foot. For ground up, it's going to range anywhere from, 
$225 to $275 a square foot. And then on the sellout side, we've been pursuing lately. We start a couple of years ago, our, we wouldn't pursue a project unless you could sell condos with, with comparable property sales already um, for around like 450 bucks a square foot. We've gone more strict now. I don't think we'd pursue a project unless you could get $600 a square foot just because construction costs have risen a little bit and property values have risen as well. So I purchased a property in Miami and I don't know, you know, I call this condo flipping where I don't have to necessarily develop the property, but I could go to a group like you guys, I could purchase pre-construction and get a cheaper rate per square foot. If I purchase pre-construction, you guys could get the money earlier to, to fund maybe say half the project. And then you could, you could go to a bank or whatever and get the rest of the capital stack. But then I could, I don't even have to get a mortgage depending on how much money I have to put down. In my case in Miami, it was, it was, you know, half of the, uh, of the total purchase price, because in Miami, they have some kind of law where, you know, they want to keep people from speculating and building too many units. So they make investors put 50% down. The developer has to go to the bank to get the other half. So I put my 50% down, but this building is right in downtown Miami, super close to the people mover, super close to the Brightline train, right across the street, essentially from where the Miami heat play. And, um, I've already, you know, I'm looking at, you know, I bought mine back in December. I look at it's sold out now, but the last unit that's sold, I mean, it's gone from me paying 800 a square foot and, you know, Miami's crazy expensive to now they've gone up to 960 a square foot. So now is there an opportunity to work with you guys to work with winter spring capital early in a project like this, um, as an investor, maybe I don't want to be a developer. I just want to be an investor in one of these units. I may not even want to have to go get a mortgage on the unit. I just want to flip it before it opens up or whatever and get in when it's a little more risky and the prices are a little lower, but then make some money on the, you know, once I might have to hold that for three or four years, but then maybe I can make $150,000, $200,000. Yeah. I mean, that's a little different than how it works up here, Adam, but it is there, there is an opportunity for that. So up here, anytime we have someone who plans to own a single unit in one of our buildings that we construct, um, if they come in very early, Typically, the owners, the buyers we see, the investor in the unit, as you put it, um, typically live in them. That's who we're usually selling to. Sometimes we'll sell several condo units in one of our new buildings to an investor and they'll rent them out. Um, but we kind of have a distinction between you know an investor who invests in the project beforehand with us that wants a return on their money based on the profit we make in the project. And they, you know, they don't own any units or anything like that. Um, or you, we've had projects where, you know, they are waterfront in Boston and they're so desirable that all we had were the plans on paper. And we had several of the units under agreement, um, for the future owners. So they knew it was going to be about, you know, year, two years at that point before they could actually move in. Um, and so kind of the difference is that 50% thing you talked about in Miami, Adam, uh, up here, typically you'll see someone put down, you know, you'll get to the purchase and sale agreement stage and they'll put down maybe like five or 10% just at the PNS. Um, and we can't use that as part of our, you know, 
as part of the capital stack, if you will, we typically have that flushed out already. Um, via, you know, a construction loan we get from the bank. We might've had an acquisition loan prior to that to purchase the property. Maybe we have a contingency where we don't even need to purchase the property till we're ready to build just based on, you know, what the seller has agreed to. Um, so it's a little different up here, how we do that. And we actually haven't had a situation, um, where it's kind of been presented that way where someone said, oh, you know, I want to buy this thing this early. Um, and then I'm going to hold it for a few years. Typically anyone who's done that just so happens with our projects is come say mid construction or, or even after the fact. Mm. Okay. So if I'm a, if I'm a, an investor, do I need to be accredited to invest in your property, which means I need to have a million dollars worth of assets or um, I believe it's $350,000 a year in income for a couple. Do I need to be an accredited investor to to get into your projects or do you guys crowdfund? Yeah, so we do 506C filings in which you'd have to be an accredited investor. People we have kind of an existing relationship with already. Sometimes we'll do a 506B filing, which just means you don't have to be accredited, but you have to have a pre-existing relationship um, with us, not initially related to any specific investment. So in that circumstance, you just have to qualify, um, not as an accredited investor, I'm blanking on the exact term, but you just have to be, um, a knowledgeable investor. I believe it is. And Ah, it just means you have some basic, yeah, you have some basic understanding of investment. Maybe you have some prior experience investing in some way, um, you're, you're not just a complete novice and you have no idea what you're doing. So that's the bar is a little bit lower there, but you have to have that pre-existing relationship um, ahead of time. Makes sense. So you guys, you've known each other for a long time. What are your roles in Winter Spring Capital now? Well, how did you guys become partnership? Do, you know, do you both kind of do the same thing? Do you, you know, have two different skill sets? I think we, we do kind of do the same thing a lot of the time. We both sort of have our, you know, focuses depending on what stage the business is at during the year or what stage it's at during a project. You know, we, we're very good at collaborating and a lot of times it's nice to bounce ideas off each other. We might look at something a little differently or notice something that the other guy doesn't notice. Um, and we have some other guys who work for us as well. Um, seven employees total with us too, but I'd say, you know, more so recently, um, Nick will be, you know, a lot of the the content and creative um, sort of like chief creative officer, if you will, um, that type of thing. I'm sort of more in like the CEO role, managing a lot of the stuff. Um, but that's, you know, that's more of, you know, keeping the company and the different structures we have. We have other companies sort of under the umbrella focusing on very specific components of, of real estate, you know, construction management arm, um, rental arm, that type of thing. But when it gets to, you know, our developments and, and dealing with everything, we're both pretty engaged at, at an equal level. Okay. How is this, you know, going into this, you guys mentioned earlier that, you know, you, neither one of you were interested in working a nine to five job. And I think a lot of our listeners are the same way. They're like, I don't want to be an indentured servant until I'm 65 years old and I get my gold watch and, you know, I get to spend 10 years alive as a retired person enjoying my life. Like nobody wants that situation that listens to this show. What, how has this changed your lives? Like, is there, were you surprised at how successful you could be at this and, and, and how you guys could, I mean, cause you're on another level. Most people are like, oh, I'm just going to invest in a 
maybe a four family and rent it out. And, you know, that's, that's the limitations to most people's real estate investing, I would say, but you guys are on another level. How did, how has this changed your lives? Definitely changed our lives. You know, in some ways we work more than maybe if we had a nine to five, but you know, it's, it's so different. We're our own bosses. You know, we've, you know, I have a nice, nice house. You know, when I, when we started, I was, we were living in the projects. We'd buy these like broken down houses and we'd like live in them while we were getting them <laughs> permitted and going through it. So it was I, I, like, I did that too. I was sleeping on a sleeping on subfloor a lot of times. Yeah. I know how that works. Yeah. And, and at this point, you know, I, I bought a, a piece of land and used kind of the knowledge I'd gained, um, in a really nice town. Um, you know, cause I have kids and it has a, you know, a nice school system and everything, but it's really expensive. Um, never could have afforded this before. And I use kind of the, the skills I had learned. First of all, I had, you know, the money to have a down payment on this property, but then I turned it into two condos, sold one of them and then kept the other one. That's where my family and I live. And we have, you know, kind of a mortgage that's as if we're living, you know, two hours out from the city and kind of a, the sticks or something, but we're living really in a, a nice neighborhood. So there's so many ways it's changed our lives. I mean, it's, it comes down mostly to financial security, um, being involved with real estate, whether you're buying properties and you have a rental portfolio, which we have on the side and you're getting that passive income, you're doing flips or condo development like we do, and you're getting kind of big cash infusions, or if you're in, just a passive investor and you're investing, you know, some, some, some every, every year that you put aside towards investments in a real estate, it, it, it's really transformative, change your life entirely. And that's why, you know, we've, we face a lot of trials and it's, it can be really stressful. A lot of, you got to think vertically and horizontally and consider all things. And then something you never considered will happen and you got to keep getting back up on that horse. So it's definitely not easy, but if you're willing to, you know, put up with all that, it's, <laughs> I think it's worth it for sure. I'd say, you know, back to your original point of the nine to five, it's like, I, my first minute at nine Oh one of my first job out of college, I said, I, I can't do this till I'm 60. <laughs> I knew I couldn't anyway, but I just, you know, I still got a job and had this plan in the background that we were going to do something once we had enough money uh, saved up. But I remember I was excited about it and then literally sat there and one minute in, I said, this is probably not, uh, this is not going to, you know, last. Um, there's no way I can do this, you know, for another 40 years at that point. Um, so, I mean, the freedom that it gives you owning your own business um, and doing something like this, it's like Nick said, I mean, we, there's times where we're working constantly and it feels like, geez, you know, we need kind of need a break here and we don't usually get one. But then at the same time, you do control that, you know, if you say, okay, look, we got to put the brakes on here for a second. You're allowed to do that. You're not beholden to anyone but yourself. I mean, your investors, of course, depending on the project or who's involved. Um, but as far as operating and running a company, it's great to run your own company. It really is. I mean, from a financial freedom perspective, that's been our goal the entire time. Get to the point of financial freedom, security, where we don't have any concerns. Our family doesn't have any concerns. I mean, and we're always striving to get to that point. Um, 
you know, allowed, like Nick said, he built his own house. It allowed me to buy a house um, when I was younger as well, probably more, you know, sooner than I would have pictured. Um, we have, you know, kind of a, a situation where we we're not nowhere close to our goals yet that we want to be at, but we set a really nice foundation and got the company to a point where um, we know we can achieve those if we continue along this path. And it's like, sometimes the risk is very high. We're very stressed out. We're taking on massive risks with some of these, the loans we take on with some of these projects, you know, you're talking real serious numbers. Um, you're putting, you know, guarantees on these loans. So that type of stuff gets to you sometimes keeps you up at night and you're thinking about it. Um, but overall it's, it's, it's far more than worth it. I would say. Well, I think that's one of the things that scares people is the risk and the responsibility of, of, of finishing something like what you guys have to do. I mean, every project, I mean, you've got to finish it. You've got to be a finisher to do what you guys do. And you've got investors that are relying on you to, to do your job and a lot of money on the line that I can imagine that just being crazy scary. Yeah. It was like, there was all these tears to it. Cause at first it was just our own money and that was scary enough. And then we had investors involved and that's, it's like, you got people who are depending on you. They put your money on the line, but we've been fortunate enough. You know, we've never lost money on a job. We've done 13 jobs so far. Um, got a, got some big ones coming up, but we've been really conservative. Um, and we've done our homework, you know, we, we are willing to jump in and dive in, but we're very studious and we're always trying to learn new things. We work with experts, you know, we'll work with an expert architect, an expert attorney who are advising us, you know, every step of the way and kind of assembling that team to give you the confidence and give you really the wisdom that you need where, yeah, you are taking a risk on paper, but you know, you, you can control the amount of risk. It's not like you're gambling. Um, you're, you're at the operating seat and you're, you kind of, you can turn those dials and pull that lever over there by the actions you take ahead of time, you know, the studying you do. And then, as you said, you just got to do, put the work in, you can't give up halfway through. Um, but I think most people are, you know, when they're given a big responsibility and it's, it's their thing and it's not someone else's. I think most people will be maybe be surprised how responsible they can be. Cause I think that's what people want. They want to kind of have their own dream and live their own life. And it's not, you're not just a drone in the machine Ugh. when it's your own thing, you're going to be really passionate about it. Um, that, you know, and that's, that's a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I made the mistake of bringing my wife to uh, Salem, Massachusetts last uh, like Halloween, you know, because we're like, oh, let's go on a cool, you know, trip up the East Coast. And, you know, I mean, we went up to Portland, Maine and places like that, too. But we went to this place called Marblehead. Now she wants a house there. Oh, Marblehead's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So we drove around there and she was like, oh, we need to we need to have something here. Like, why don't why can't we live in Marblehead <laughs> and I can be close to all these cool Halloween things every year and we can come here all the time, you know, that, you know, but it was it was a really cool area. Oh, yeah. Where do you guys. So you mentioned having something on the coast. What do you go to like neighborhoods, like established older neighborhoods like that? Like, how do you find your properties? Because I can almost imagine there's a lot of people out there doing this right now. 
and or something similar, maybe not to your level, but you got a lot of people who, you know, they watch HGTV and flip or whatever fail or whatever in the world shows are out there. But, you know, they all of a sudden think, oh, I could do that. Right. And they're out here, you know, doing, you know, house flipping and stuff. So, I mean, it can be really, really competitive, especially in a city like Boston. Are you still looking inside of Boston or do you do you find yourselves more and more going out to like more rural parts and suburban areas? Um, well, our focus it has really been what's called urban infill projects. That's the majority of our, our projects in Boston. There's a lot of boroughs, neighborhoods of Boston, and they each have their own you know, specialties or uniqueness, price per square foot levels, that type of thing. And some don't meet the levels we need, some do. So it is kind of a rat race now is a lot of people trying to find the next you know, property to turn into a bigger property and sell individual units out of it. Um, so, and prices are just going through the roof, you know, like if you want to buy a three family and convert it into three condos, this is probably not much money, if any, to be made doing that. You have to really add additional space, add additional value somehow in, in Boston. So what we're starting to do is move a little outside Boston into kind of these satellite cities, um, within the same state, within Massachusetts, um, where we're, we are looking at um, a different style of project where we found most recently an office building, an old office building with retail on the first floor. The retail is still operating, but most of the office space is vacant. Um, they're, you know, very vacant, like it hasn't been used in a long time. And we've you know, contacted some experts, historic tax credit experts, um, the town, the city specifically, you know, city planner, and they're very amenable to converting those into residential units and actually working with developers like us. So that's one of the next projects we're taking on. We're looking at this uh, building right now. It's about 50,000 square feet again, and we're going to keep the floor retail. We're going to keep a little office on the second floor. And then the second half of the second floor and the third and fourth floors will all be residential apartment units. So we're actually going to keep that, hold on to it um, as a long-term investment and rent out those units. Once we convert it, be about a two and a half year horizon as far as today goes from, from today. Um, but that's kind of our first foray into this, um, type of thing. And it's really caused by some of this pressure in Boston that it's getting harder and harder, um, to find projects that are very profitable where we can be conservative and, and know, okay, this is safe to get into something like this. And because Boston is, it's getting very difficult to develop from uh, sort of like a political standpoint, the city's becoming very anti-develop uh, mm, development. The neighbors yes. are very anti-development, the city politicians back the neighbors, um, cause you know, they want to get reelected and it kind of, uh, <laughs> yep. makes the process of just saying, Hey, look, I want to add, you know, I want to add residents to your neighborhood that want to move into Boston and want to buy these condos and live here makes that process very difficult because you're fought at, at every corner. Um, and what should be, you know, a three or four month process to get your permit ends up usually now taking say, 15 to 24 months, depending on the size oh of your project. Yeah. And it's, it's cause causes holding costs to go up. And really that's part of the driving force of home prices in Boston because the supply is being restricted by a lot of this red tape. So we're starting to move outside kind of like you suggested Adam. Yeah. I can feel it too. Just politically, there's something going on right now. And I don't know, I don't, even in Cincinnati, I mean, and this is pretty, uh, you know, 
apolitical. Like we're it, it's sure. it's purple. It's really purple here. And the city is pretty liberal, but we're on the border of Kentucky. So there's that. And then, you know, the metro right. area, I would say, is probably half and half. Like it's a little probably leans a little more Republican. Um, but in general, you have some really militant people in the city on mostly, I'd say, the left. And for some reason, they've just got this this hatred for landlords and for developers. And I, I don't I don't understand it because it's like, hey, do you want the city to look like crap forever? But then at the yep. same time, I guess their argument is, well, the rents are going up. Rents are going up. We can't afford to live here anymore. And it's almost like, well, if you want to live in a city, you got to you got to pay the money. I mean, you can't complain your way out of rent. I, I just don't get it. And I mean, it hurts people like you who've dedicated your entire lives and your investments and all your savings to build a company. Meanwhile, they want to work at Starbucks and live in downtown Boston. Yeah, I mean, it's. I heard a story that when the Eiffel Tower was, were very against it and, you know, wanted it to not be built. So, and now it's like the landmark of the city and, you know, known worldwide. So people resist change. They don't. And also there's, there's kind of a new undercurrent of like bitterness about like people trying to make money. Um, And I understand that there are people who have made money, in immoral ways, mm. but building an apartment building isn't immoral. You're providing housing to people. And, you know, the reason rents are going up partially is because we're not building enough. You know, it's That's a simple fact. economics, supply yep. and demand. If we're not able to build, and especially here in Boston, you know, it's interesting. It, it here, the it's extremely liberal and there's a lot of red tape and you have to go through, you know, a lot of neighborhood meetings and all that, um, which I think is a consequence of the fact that it's it's liberal, you know, governance here. But I think the people, you know, if you empower the neighbors to, you know, say, I don't want a project up my street, they they come in all stripes, you know, red and blue. I, I think neighbors not in my backyard, they it, they're politically, you know, on both sides. So the the problem is like letting people have too much say in the process, in my opinion. Uh, I don't want to go too much down that hole, but I think that, pe- you know, politicians should govern and they should say, OK, our plan is that we have to build this here. And, you know, if you don't like it, you can you can vote me out next time. But this is part of my policy. But they don't want to do that. They want the neighbors to make the decision. And neighbors, no one wants something to be built in their backyard. And the people who show up to these meetings are people who are pissed off to start with. You know, people who are apathetic or even support it. They're not going to show up to a neighborhood meeting at 7.30 p.m. on a Tuesday. You know, so all this leads to a supply shortage. <laughs> and and it, there's so much, you know, restrictive things stand in your way, barriers to entry. And, you know, we're able to navigate those, but it's really tough. And that's led to rising rents, rising home prices. It's not the only reason, but it's one of the biggest ones. Well, and you guys also have to deal with, I guess, as a result of capitalism, you know, you've also got BlackRock and people like Zillow who are no longer buying houses, but they're also driving up the prices of homes because, I mean, Zillow for a while there was paying over market. They were going, they were actually coming in here in Cincinnati, and I think they ended up 
buying over a thousand homes here because the margins on rentals are great here. And, uh, you know, those folks are, you know, coming in from a corporate perspective, hedge funds and family offices and, you know, people like that are coming in and they're, they recognize the value in real estate, but they've got a lot of capital and they can come in and they can actually affect the, the home prices and also affect your business. Yeah, and the right. big thing is, is that people don't realize is, you know, Eric and I are normal guys. We have kind of a small to mid-sized business. We're building apartment buildings in our local area. You know, we've got an affordable housing project, that office conversion Eric mentioned. Mm. We're taking an underutilized building and we're, that has been, you know, it looks nice because it's a nice historic building, but it's, it's been underutilized. Half of it's vacant and we're going to make it useful again by tearing into apartments we're providing an, a useful service but a lot of this red tape hurts you know small local people like us and it helps the big companies like blackrock like you're talking about they can just kind of shrug off these regulations that are put in place and swoop in and take advantage which which they're doing as you said so um, you know this is all again it's a it's a result of too much restriction on traditional builders who have mostly been local and are experts in their local area, know it inside and out and kind of care about their community. Yes. Yes. And you guys, you're kind of the, in a way you're, uh, you know, people go after you because you're accessible to them and they don't know. They, a lot of times they don't even know why they're mad and they don't want to change their mind. No matter how much information you throw at them, they're still going to be upset with you. And it's almost like unless you're there to make no money, they're not happy about whatever it is you're doing. And it's it's kind of scary to think that people could be that upset about people making money that they won't even let someone who's literally trying to do something good for their community. And at the same – I mean you, what you guys do is a win-win for everybody. It's a win-win for the neighborhood. You're taking, uh, mm -hmm. an, uh, you know, an underutilized building that is not performing. Nobody can live in there. And you're spending your capital, taking the risk to produce something for the community. And you're not a BlackRock. You're not a Zillow. You're just a couple normal guys who want to make some money, start your own business, enjoy your lives, and provide something for your community – but for some reason, you're the enemy at these meetings. Yeah, it's a very uh, it's a very uncomfortable uh, dynamic at these meetings. That's for sure. And I think, uh, you know, sometimes people shout out, what are you selling these condos for? You know, and they they see, oh, you're selling a unit for five, six, seven hundred thousand. They think we're just getting a check each unit for seven hundred thousand. Oh, it's yeah. going into our pocket. You know, so they, there is a lot of that. It's interesting you brought that up. There's there's certainly a lot of that. They 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 don't understand the whole picture. They don't understand that you know there's a massive cost to generate that seven hundred thousand in revenue. Um, they don't understand that we're, we're we are really providing a service for the community and and in the end helping increase their property values. If another developer who's sort of does what we do in the same size range sees, oh, this they they were able to knock down a single family in this neighborhood and build a seven unit condo building, 
oh, okay, that that means there's some precedent there. Maybe I could do that too. Maybe they'd be willing to pay more because they have a little more security and, and precedent um, to buy, you know, another house on that same street. Yeah. I mean, and you guys are carrying debt for a pretty long period of time and hoping that these units sell. And right now, I mean, you've got, you know, interest rates are going up and, you know, the Fed's probably going to raise next time they meet and you're going to start seeing mortgage rates go up, right? Bond, bond, you know, 10-year treasury has been going up for a while now. And, you know, you're going to see less and less people out there really excited about going out and buying homes. So now that's going to affect your guys' business where it could take longer and longer. You know, maybe it, you sell it in a, a month, right? Cincinnati over the, you know, at one point we were the fastest to sell. Three days, things were on the market and they were selling here. And you're talking about single family homes. But I mean, a lot of times you guys have the responsibility of carrying this debt, no matter what the economic condition is at the time. You don't know what six months from now is going to look like. You're in the middle of a project you're trying to pre-sell these properties. You may not sell it for a year, but meanwhile, you're sitting here carrying all this debt. There's no getting around it. It's, you know, there's risks involved with it. And that's why, you know, people will sit there in a chair and, and get mad at you at the end when you make money. But there, you had to take the risk to get to the end process where you make that money. So, yeah, you took a calculated risk and it worked out for you, you know, because you were conservative and you you planned for maybe there was a downturn or you planned for an event where things take a little longer to sell. Well, that's just you being a good business person. So you should be rewarded for that. As far as I'm concerned. I'd agree with you on that, but I'd also agree that if I'm a real estate investor, if I'm looking to do what you guys do, I'd much rather invest in one of your projects, a couple guys who know Boston, know Massachusetts, right? I'd rather I'd rather put the money with you, not have to take a lot of that risk and, and invest in one of your projects. And I feel like it'd be a lot I'd just be a lot smarter that way. It would be a smart maneuver. That's that's kind of what we try to tell any investor who's interested in working with us. It's like that's one of the benefits. Hey, look, you could do this yourself. And that's what Nick's book goes into. Everything to, you know, from start to finish. But you can also make a lot of money passively without having to really um, take on any of this risk yourself. Yeah, your capital is at risk, the the your investment amount, but that's that's it. That's the maximum exposure you have. Um, whereas with us, with our company getting the loans and guaranteeing the loans and, and the like, um, there's much more at risk um, for us than just the capital we put in that specific project. Well, it's time. I mean, geez, I couldn't imagine. I mean, Cincinnati is pretty laid back. I mean, we can, you know, the bureaucracy here here can be a pain in the ass, but I can imagine Boston being a lot worse in in New York and places like that all along the East Coast. Um, Yes. Just being a nightmare to try to get anything done. I don't want to have to deal with that. I mean, you guys are willing to deal with that. <laughs> so, I mean, why not? Why why do that? And and plus, I'm in Cincinnati. You're in Boston. If I wanted to invest in something in Boston, I don't want to have to go to Boston every single time I got to meet with some bureaucrat about, you know, a zoning change or something. Yeah, you th- you're thinking correctly because those uh, meetings are not enjoyable. So <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't think but, so, to say the least. Yeah, but I mean, as Eric said, it's like we we take on more risk, but even the far bigger thing is the time. Even so, we're 
doing this full time and we've built up experience over the years, other people like us, you know, there's some people who don't develop it. They just buy existing properties and they kind of fix them up. They're called value add. Um, there's a lot of different people you can invest with out in the real estate industry, but it's, you know, it's, it's up to you. Do you want to take on a little bit more risk and do this full time and quit your day job? You can make more money, but you're, you're the person who's last in line to get paid. You know, you pay the bank, then you pay the investors, then you pay yourself. So the risk is higher to you. Um, if you know, you make a little less profit, you might be the one who gets, you did all the work and then you don't get paid. And, and, you know, those things are all set in stone legally in the contract. So you can't even get out of that if you wanted to. So you, you are taking on a lot of risk, but there is a higher reward. So if you're interested in that, I did write a book. Uh, it's, a, it's available at our website, winterspringcapital.com slash development dash book. And it's true. You can make the most reward as the developer or the operator. But for most people, if you're not trying to quit your day job or you're not trying to get involved with, you know, kind of all the nonsense Eric and I have been talking about, we have to deal with, then you can invest passively as well, which, you know, we've built up a pretty good network of investors on our projects. And it's a good, it's a good win-win for everyone. You know, we get people involved and other people get to sit back and just make money passively. And now do you guys have like a group of go-to investors that usually say, Hey, look, we found a property. We made you money in the past. Would you want to drop another hundred grand in an, in another project? Yeah. Yeah, we do. Um, we definitely have those people. Um, and our other, our, our other guy who works with us, Kyle, um, in our capacity, he talks to a lot of those people. He brings a lot of those people in. He's built up a lot of relationships for our company. Um, so yeah, that's something where, you know, we might, someone might cash out an investment and then they say, they might even ask us directly, Hey, look, what's on the docket next. Um, and we'll, we'll show them what we have available. Sometimes it compares to what they're in before. Sometimes maybe the anticipated return will be a bit lower, a bit higher, just depends kind of on the length of the project, the risk profile of that project. Um, you know, the potential sales numbers in that specific kind of borough of Boston, um, if it's something we're planning to hold on to after, you know, so there's a lot of differences. It's always a per project thing. We can never say, Hey, look, this will be your standard return. You're always going to get something like this. Um, they're never, you know, too out of whack, but if we're taking on say a really risky project, a really, um, you know, kind of something that's very speculative in nature, um, we might offer, um, you know, a better return to, to entice people or, or to sort of equate to that level of risk. Totally makes sense. So now tell me, what was the inspiration for the book? Yeah. So, I mean, we kind of spent the first few years in our company. We had no brand. We had no marketing. And I think that was to our detriment. And I noticed, you know, what I call the karma economy. People are putting out free information about the area of their expertise. And that kind of builds a brand around yourself you have this knowledge that you have in your head and maybe there's not really a book. Like in my case, I don't think there's a specific book on getting, you know, projects permitted and developed for condominium development out there. Um, especially in kind of these cities where there's a lot of red tape, it's a very specific knowledge, but it's profitable knowledge. A lot of people are interested in. So you build the brand around yourself 
And lots of stuff can come to you that way. Deals have come to us. You know, we look more legitimate because we've established ourselves as thought leaders in this area. Um, so a lot of benefits to that. Yeah, I think it's, it's it's kind of a marketing thing when when I'm being honest with you. But I'm happy if 99% of the people read the book and they don't come back to me, they don't give me a deal, they don't invest, they start their own company. That makes me pretty happy. So I think it's kind of a win-win. I like this kind of karma economy approach to things. I love it. So now uh, I appreciate it, guys. I, I love that you came on the show. I love that you're you're being so candid with us about you know, how hard it is to get this stuff off the ground. It's not all, you know, peaches and roses out here. It's, it, it can be tough. So once again, just tell us, tell, tell everybody where they can find the book, um, how they can invest, uh, you know, what opportunities you guys have right now open to investors. You can get the book at winterspringcapital.com slash development dash book. And then on our website, winterspringcapital.com, you can sign up as an investor if you're interested and you can see our upcoming opportunities right now. We're just about finished raising for a 32-unit condo development um, in a part of Boston, five minutes from Harvard, MIT, really big life sciences area. So that's kind of a luxury condominium development. And then our upcoming investment opportunity that we'll be unveiling soon is, is an office conversion um, in a satellite city of Boston that we were talking about earlier. That'll be 31 units. Awesome. Well, I know who to call when, uh, the wife's like, Hey, let's go, uh, let's go back up near Salem and, and check out that Marblehead area. I know who to talk to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Give us a call anytime. And you gotta, you gotta pronounce it Marblehead. That's Marblehead. Marblehead. Well, Hey, I see your Patriots are doing pretty good again. Oh, they're doing great. Yeah, they're starting to pick it back the up. The rest of the NFL is 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 probably not happy about a potential re reinvigorated future here. Well, I'm not happy I think they because the Patriots are done. That's what we <laughs> thought. Yeah, a guy from Cincinnati here whose Bengals have been terrible for so long. We well, finally doing good too. Exactly, but now you guys are doing great. Six six games in a row. <laughs> Maybe a, a Mac and Joe. Uh, you know, AFC championship. Never there, know. There you go. Well, root, root for my Bearcats in the in the NCAA uh, football playoff. So we, we got to get these old-time teams out of here. We got to get the, the Georgias and the Alabamas out of here. There you go. It just seems tough. And we're not college football guys at all up here. It's just not really a thing in the Northeast. But I, it seems tough to get Alabama to, to go anywhere besides, you know, the national championship game. <laughs> I know. It's, that's probably why nobody's interested in it. It's the same teams every year. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, well, I appreciate it, guys. Thanks a lot for being on the show, and, and good luck with everything. Thanks, Adam. Thank you. Appreciate that it. That was great. Thank you, gentlemen. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot, Adam. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of Side Hustle City. Well, you've heard from our guests. Now let's hear from you. Join our community on Facebook, Side Hustle City. It's a group where people share ideas, share their inspirational stories, and motivate each other to be successful and turn their side hustle into their main hustle. We'll see you there, and we'll see you next week on the show. Thank you.